Hello, this is Kat. And this is Phoebe. Welcome to another edition of Feminine Chaos. Today on Feminine Chaos, we're going back to school. <laughs> <laughs> that, that we certainly are, yes. Uh, or maybe we're, we're sending some, some old out-of-touch professors slash curators back to school. Anyway, mm-hmm. the, theme of, the theme of this conversation is that the olds have to go. The olds have had their run. And now it's time for the the young ones to the young. Isn't that that's also some British sitcom that I actually don't really know. Um, yes, yes. The, sorry, wait, there's a British sitcom that you don't know. Yeah, there are many that I don't know. There's so many. There's so many. Oh. I I guess sort of stuck in a few, and then I thought this was like a hell froze over moment. Okay, <laughs> no. continue. Um, yeah. So there are a lot of young people these days who are apparently fed up with the old guard and rather than as in the past just sort of protesting making a fuss dropping out you know starting their own stuff they you know it's the the inmates taking over the asylum style thing right that's that's sort of the cliche yeah that's the uncharitable interpretation so we talked about one such incident here on feminine chaos a while back where uh donald mcneil jr a veteran, esteemed, grizzled, grizzled, grizzly, grizzled. grizzly grizzled. bear. I don't know. I think I saw that somewhere. Grizzled about him. I don't know why. Why? What does it mean for him to be grizzled? Um, swashbuckling. Was he wiz wizened? Wizened? <laughs> Something like that. <laughs> <laughs> a professionally accomplished and old person um, was. Uh, so he was a New York Times. A health journalist who was fired from his job at the Times, and it's a little convoluted because this was not to do with journalism. He was lecturing on a trip to Peru for rich high school students, basically, and some expensive uh, educational tour of Peru. And they didn't like him. <laughs> yeah, this this is even. Yeah. I mean, we, we'll we'll leave our discussion in the show notes he was not actually lecturing he was having a casual conversation over dinner there i'm saying he was hired to lecture that was his purpose that he was like to guide as some kind of like speaker he wasn't the tour guide he was he was a chaperone basically yeah he was like a yeah he was a field trip chaperone but he there was something with a use not with a mention versus use issue with the n-word was something to do with this i think yeah yeah this is i mean this honestly feels like entrapment you know the kids bring it up he takes the bait and then he gets fired for you know mentioning the n-word in the context of a conversation about whether somebody mentioned the n-word yes and so then but it at, lo and behold it turns out that at the new york times he had been a union organizer and a rabble rouser trying to get as many of these funny terms as possible yes uh and that basically the management wanted to get rid of him anyway and used this as a pretext so rather than saying that they were gonna you know crack down on a labor uprising within their ranks no no they were just helping the hypersensitive youths um, avoid hearing harsh language. Right. So this sort of does set a template, which I yes. think is you know part of what we're talking about today, that um, whenever one of these firings over so-called wokeness run amok occurs, often if you scratch the surface of it, what it really is, is some, you know, 
cowardly or maybe opportunistic or maybe both administrators who are adults seeing an opportunity to get rid of somebody who's been a thorn in their side for some other reason, whether it's, um, you know, because they find this person frustrating, um, because this person is underperforming, or because this person makes a useful scapegoat, or, you know, all of the above. But anyway, it's rarely as straightforward as you have argued persuasively in a piece about the latest iteration of this, um, as just students whine, professor or authority figure gets fired. Uh, well, yeah, I, I'm in, on the one hand happy to have persuaded, but on the other, I was <laughs> I had geared up for a big uh, battle over this one. So, um, oh well, we're gonna agree to agree. Yeah, you did your job a little too a little too well. Unlike yeah. unlike a certain organic <laughs> chemistry teacher, but you know, <laughs> I, I make no promises for when I'm 84. <laughs> I'll be, how well okay, I'll so be. tell me and tell our listeners for those unfamiliar, what happened to the New York University? chemistry, organic chemistry professor. So Maitland Jones Jr., another junior, was an adjunct professor so on a year-by-year contract at NYU. Now that's a type of sort of precarious position in academia. I was also at once an adjunct at NYU, but this was part of my uh, grad school program. So that's like how I was paid for some of grad school in French, not organic chemistry. I've never taken organic chemistry and <laughs> never. I mean, how, di- how different are they really? I mean, <laughs> you know, it's it's a weed out class. If you if you can't do etra, you're... you'll never be a doctor. All right, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> not in France, you won't. But yeah, so normally it's a certain sort of precarious job. However, he was a little bit of a special case, not only because he was eighty four, and this all happened last spring, so he would have been, I guess, eighty three or eighty four at the time. But also because he had been a a really high up professor. He's an emeritus professor at Princeton. So, you know, a top Ivy League university where he was a tenured professor, big shot professor, and really like an accomplished chemist. Like he wrote a major textbook in his field, it sounds like. And he um, was just like a really, he, he innovated in terms of like teaching how to teach organic chemistry. Which for those not in the know, um, we should mention, this is the course that you take as a pre-med student that basically alerts you early on as to whether you actually have what it takes to be a doctor. A lot of people who think that they're going to be doctors or want to be doctors end up not pursuing that path in school because of organic chemistry, because it's so goddamn hard. That's right. That's right. And there is some debate, apparently, over whether that should be the case, whether this is a necessary skill for a doctor to have. But the fact is that that it is at this point in how medical training works. This is this early on as an undergrad weed out course. Yeah, I want to actually just say while we're on this topic, because I'm not sure that we're going to return to it. That I think that now, maybe more than ever, in light of how much pharmaceuticals are a part of medical treatment and knowing how things interact at a molecular level is important, you know, as opposed to doing like if you if you were like a field surgeon back in the Civil War days, um, that yeah, you know, it's it's important that students today who want to be doctors know organic chemistry. I'm just gonna I'm gonna take that stance. <laughs> well, you know what? I'm gonna say that if all things are equal and I'm about to go under the knife 
and they say, here, do you want this doctor who passed organic chemistry with flying colors? Or do you want this other doctor who tried really, really hard and really deserved to pass? And shouldn't they pass? I think, (laughs) yeah. Yeah. So basically, um, the reason we're talking about this now is because this particular organic chemistry professor was fired. Now, this is where it gets a little dicey. Was it that a bunch of students complained and he got fired? Technically, yes. A bunch of students complained. Yes. He got fired. Yes. Both of these things happened. However, what happened was that students in his class who were unhappy with him, well, we'll talk about what exactly he was doing, um, but some of it was just low grades. That was not all of it. These students in his class, many of them, not most of them, it seems, made a petition against him, but they did not ask for him to be fired, nor did they think apparently that it was possible for him to be fired. So this is an article in the New York Times by Stephanie Saul is my uh, primary source for this, although I did look into a little bit of the tweets on this and so forth to see because there's some interesting stuff there too. But basically, I would believe this, that the students didn't want him to be fired necessarily or even think he could. And the reason, as I wrote in my Globe and Mail column about this, was basically that he's old. He seems like a professor. He has the blazer. He's this, you know, old white guy with a beard. I And who was a Princeton professor until about five minutes ago. I think that they genuinely, insofar, I, I don't mean that they were thinking about how tenure works or the specifics of academia, but I bet they assumed that this was just some sort of mainstay professor who wasn't going anywhere. And I don't think, because there are other cases like this where, you know, like one journalist, you know, piles on another journalist and says, oh, and then plays plays all coy, like, I didn't know they would be fired. You know, I don't think this is that. I think they genuinely didn't know he was going to be fired. But he was fired, as in like his contract wasn't renewed. Now he's 84 years old. And he says in this article that he was planning on retiring pretty soon anyway. So the the significance of this case, as it's presented in this article, isn't, oh, no, how is he going to put food on the table for his, you know, many small children? It was more like, what does this mean for other adjuncts? Is it going to be that if an adjunct wants to have wants to uphold standards in their class, now they can't because students who are all whiny these days won't have it. And so that's roughly the story, I think. Yeah, that sounds about right. I think that the one thing that's important to note is that the way this letter that the students wrote was phrased um, really ignited something. We could say it was triggering mm-hmm. to you know the members of the media class who immediately kind of weighed in on this, all all in favor of the professor and anti the students. Um, what they said was that their grades in the course did not reflect the time or effort they had put in to attempting to pass, which does, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to give them zero points for (laughs) style, Um, substance maybe, but style, you know, that does sound kind of like a caricature of we want, you know, we want the you tried star, we want the A for effort. They want, okay, so this is where this was so perfect as of a story and why I think it got everybody on team professor, regardless of ideology, even though it was, uh, I think, kind of a culture wars thing too. 
it's the it's the trophy for every child cliche, right? Of course. Of course. You know, which is one of these things that I don't know how often it actually happens and I don't know how much of a big deal it is if a bunch of like you know, elementary school students all get a trophy for showing up. Well, maybe they <laughs> whatever. But um the point is that like this was pretty bad and also where there are stakes, you know, there are underqualified doctors at the end of the road if and also so they were cheating in the class these students. They were just doing extremely, extremely poorly. Yeah, they're not perfect victims is what we're saying. I, I'm sorry. I just want to say also that, you know, it really says something about like how many kind of pieces had to fall into place for this narrative to land in such a way that people were sympathetic to the professor um, who is not just an old white guy, but an old white guy named Maitland Jones Jr. Like he sounds like he should be a Southern lawyer in a John Grisham <laughs> novel. Um <laughs> It's, you know, everything about this was perfectly positioned to, you know, to make this a story about, you know, like an old entitled white man getting what he deserved. And the fact that it didn't land that way, I think, says something about not just the students, but yeah, as you were saying, the medical aspect of it, that it ignited this anxiety about like, we're going to have doctors who don't know how to do chemistry and perhaps by extension, like a lot of other things. Maybe they can't even add. <laughs> <laughs> well, so I think there are a bunch of things converging. And I think one of them, so this I also mentioned in my piece, is that NYU, um, where, yes, I have a PhD from, it's extremely embarrassing. No, I, I'm proud of it, I guess. Um, but the point is, NYU, specifically, I think the undergrad program has a certain kind of place in the New York City landscape, I think, culturally, where it's kind of like considered often a bunch of like it's they're not the serious students of Columbia, but they're also not the sort of scrappy students of a community college, which there are plenty of, you know, also in the city or a public college. No, these are like the rich kids who maybe didn't do quite as well in high school. Now, I think that's changed. I think NYU certainly in some programs is quite hard to get into at this point. And also many, many students are on a lot of financial aid there, have a ton of debt. So it's not that the kids themselves are wealthy necessarily, but so it's not like Harvard or somewhere where that would be the case. But it does have this kind of role in New York as kind of like a bit of a sort of like the NYU students, even though I think basically practically everybody I knew in New York would wind up with one affiliation or another with NYU just because it's such a big employer and such a, you know, big, basically like a big company. So I think a lot of media types were kind of like, haha, idiot NYU students. And that was kind of like, it was kind of confirming something they already thought. Mm-hmm. Maybe it's also worth mentioning where NYU fits geographically into the New York City landscape because it is located in the uh, in the village, which is one of the most expensive neighborhoods, like you know, expensive historic neighborhoods. Unlike Columbia, which is the Ivy League school, but Columbia is like this little enclave protected by high gates in the middle of Harlem, which is not as rough a neighborhood as it once was. But even when I was living in New York in the early two thousands, like that part of the Upper West Side slash Harlem. It was, you know, if you were not in Columbia's campus proper, it could be dicey. Right. Morningside Heights, right? This, yeah. Um, if yeah. I'm remembering. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, and I, I lived in Harlem in, in the early 2000s, which is why I, you know, I feel like I know this area, although I lived further up into um, like Hamilton Heights. But anyway, you know, it's it's just important to note that the resentment of NYU students 
is kind of related to this sense they're like stinking up what was otherwise a classy joint you know yes yes and I think it's a really interesting dynamic and it's one that I found like pretty interesting for years which is this thing where they're always painted as the gentrifiers the NYU students even though the people complaining about them as I not to keep saying as I point out in the piece but I do because I looked up I looked up to see what a house costs in the West Village because I was going to I had some line in the article where I wrote something like a, a 10 million dollar or like I don't know, $8 million or something house because I was just guessing. And then I looked and no, no, $15 million house because that's what's there now, you know? So these are not, these are not slums, <laughs> I guess. Would be. So the people who are annoyed about the NYU students, they sort of frame it as like that they're punching up against these, you know, private school students, but maybe they're also just kind of punching down at the fact that they can't live in their manor houses in peace. Yeah. I mean, it's just a lot of people who live in glass houses throwing stones at people who live in other glass houses. This is reminding me of some tweet by somebody recently. So it was nothing to do with NYU students, but it was extremely funny where it was some guy complaining that like giant truck type SUVs are parked on his quiet West Village block and that it looks like the, he's being invaded. You remember this? Oh, gosh. Uh, vaguely. It was really funny. But then he, I think, either deleted it or locked his account or something. And... <laughs> I mean, if this is what you do when you when you make a silly tweet, then you have to pretend you don't exist for a little while. Th- those are the rules. I think so. I don't I don't remember who this was who did this. So anyway, uh, nothing to do with NYU. So the point is, yeah, NYU students, popular punching bag, and then the whole fear of being operated on by somebody inept entered into it. But also what I wanted to talk about was the culture wars angle, which is the meritocracy. So there's this other dynamic, which relates kind of to this NYU one, but that's much, much bigger, which is where there's this kind of anti-meritocratic trend saying, you know, there shouldn't be standardized tests, it should be replaced by, you know, admissions, essays, and so forth. There should be more holistic admissions, all of this, where the people advocating for this will say that they're doing so on behalf of underrepresented minorities and on behalf of young people from marginalized and oppressed and deprived backgrounds. But what ends up being the case, lo and behold, is that this is about the ability of a rich kid who doesn't score well to nevertheless get the spot in a top school, top job, whatever that they feel is their birthright. Does that dynamic ring any sort Does that seem like a thing? Yeah, well, I mean, I think that that very much encapsulates why this ended up being a story in which people were more sympathetic to Professor than to the students. Yes. So that, I think, was was a lot of what was going on here was this idea that and why specifically why I think this fit into a culture wars narrative, because in another framing, you could say this that NYU is a company. They had a badly performing employee, they fired him. Okay. <laughs> you know, that's that's the market. That's the real world where you, you do badly at your job, you get warnings, you keep doing badly at your job, you're fired. Well, okay. So, so this is where I think this gets kind of interesting, which is, was this a top performing professor or not? Well, what do you think, Kat? Was he a top performing professor, top of his game, this is an interesting question because the other piece of this puzzle is 
COVID and its impact on how kids who are currently in their first years of college have been experiencing school and attempting to study for the past three years, basically. I think that this man's, you know, Mr. Jones, Mr. Maitland Jones, um, I think that his reputation as a stellar professor and, uh, I mean, he was credited with basically inventing like the best pedagogy, right? You know, the best teaching techniques for organic chemistry um, that, that, you know, were the most effective at getting students to where they needed to be. I would guess that that is not an undeserved reputation. I would guess that he, you know, prior to this massive upheaval caused by COVID probably was, you know, if not the best professor, a perfectly good one. And that's just because I I think it's unlikely that everybody was delusional about his gifts, his abilities. Over the course of like a, a, you know, I mean, he's 84. So let's say like a 50 year career. Um, But that said, the landscape now is what it is. So whether or not he was deservedly considered an excellent professor pre-COVID, he's clearly not an effective one post-COVID. He's clearly not an effective one right now. And I I heard you make a noise. um, Yes. Well, because I, I think that that's part of it, but I think there's a much... Yeah. Yeah. Go on. Go on. Sorry. I mean, the fact that students were cheating in the class and that cheating is rampant and has been ever since um, like Zoom school became a thing. And you know, this is something that I, I know about, you know, from sort of like lurking on the sidelines of conversations between, you know, professors in other areas of study and, you know, at other schools and so on that, you know, this changed the way that students, especially students who are leaving high school and coming into college, engaged in learning. And, you know, the fact is that whether or not it's reasonable, whether or not it should be different, it is what it is. And somebody needs to meet these students where they are so that they can learn the shit and become effective doctors. Uh, And, you know, I, I would certainly much rather that a professor be hired who's capable of teaching them, not just pa- not passing them, you know, because I don't want to see a bunch of people who don't know how to do organic chemistry, nevertheless, just being bumped ahead, like, like, you know, kids who are illiterate in the fifth grade, but we have to pass them up because it makes us look bad if we don't. So yeah, uh, this is a long winded way of saying that I think that probably, you know, Maitland Jones is just not an effective professor for the current moment, whatever he might have been previous to this. And they need to find somebody who can teach the kids where they are, the kids. These are adults, (laughs) but, you know, the students. Um, So that, you know, the like massive learning losses that occurred during COVID don't become entrenched and we don't end up being a nation of kids who go to college and expect to be able to like cheat their way through to a medical degree. So I think everything to say about COVID and what's necessary for current teachers is 100% right. Where I think you're a little too generous to Maitland Jones Jr. is I don't think that there's any evidence in this article or not none. There's not zero evidence. Like there's some mention of a teaching award, although 
goodness knows when, because I think he switched. For, I think he retired from Princeton possibly in 2007, something like that. And he's been teaching at NYU since then. Um, so I don't know whether this teaching award was like in 1980. I don't know, whatever. But the point is, he's extremely accomplished, demonstrably accomplished in the research area of his work. Professors, you know, have they do research and they teach, right? He definitely, definitely, definitely is accomplished in the research part. He innovated some pedagogical theory. You know, he came up with some idea of how students should be taught. That's apparently really brilliant and really, you know, has changed the field. That's clear. What's not clear is that at least any time remotely recently, he has been among the better teachers, right? So that I don't think was actually demonstrated in the article. There's this whole passage about how illustrious a career he's had, but it doesn't really get into anything. The only evidence of him having been at all recently considered a good teacher is some link to something where he was included in some NYU student paper roundup of cool professors, which wasn't saying that he was an amazing, like it just, it, it didn't seem to really go anywhere and yeah there's no reason to think that he was particularly good at teaching whereas there is reason beyond the fact that he was fired and that these students made this petition to think that he was bad at teaching and that's well so let me get into this so one of the things is that he apparently per this article had the worst teaching evaluations in chemistry, but also like in science generally, which is like, that's, NYU is huge, you know? And that's a lot of people teaching very difficult classes, including organic chemistry classes and other types of, you know, hard science classes who were not getting the worst, you know? So that's relevant. Now, a lot of times people say, okay, well, student evaluations are biased. Well, they're biased supposedly against women and against people of color, which, well, in this case, and often like young instructors who seem, you know, immature, whatever. Okay, (laughs) I don't think any of that would hold here. If he was getting consistently low student evaluations, it could be that he wasn't a great teacher. And then finally, this is just, so I was looking at some of the tweets about um, this article, and there was one I found where somebody had written something like, remember when I was talking about how I had some chemistry class where the professor would name the student who got the lowest score in some test and humiliate them in front of the whole class anyway, and then a link to the article. Yes, I did see that. So all I just want to say that putting all of that together, a picture starts to form in my mind of a professor who, however accomplished in one area of his work, was maybe not, even pre-COVID, all that wonderful in another. And I guess this idea that like, that to have standards is to have some sort of like genius asshole <laughs> be in front of the class, if that's indeed how it was perceived by the students. Yeah, I don't know. I, I think it's a little more complicated than that students didn't want to have a low grade, so they fired the teacher. Oh, I agree with that. I just think that the what you describe as the genius asshole at the front of class, which is a, a great way of putting it, is a model of teaching that was much more popular prior to, um, I don't know, I mean, you know, I guess maybe like the sort of social media era or the online era. Maybe I'm even going, you know, not going far back enough 
But I think that people not only were less affronted by that and less likely to see it as like a form of harm to be subjected to that in the past, but also to see it as a valuable and maybe even superior way of teaching, you know, to to put students through this trial by fire, to force them to, you know, to grow a thick skin, to get them used to this, you know, the idea that it's humiliating to fail so that they would, you know, then like be pushed that much more to succeed um, you know, because they wanted to avoid that. And I, I mean, I feel like there's even a corresponding kind of parenting style that you could point to that takes a similar approach to trying to like, you know, rear young people to be a certain way. Tiger mom. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That's exactly it. Now, you know, from a contemporary perspective, a lot of that stuff seems monstrous, insensitive, and ineffective. Um, and I think that's in part because people who were subject to this type of teaching or parenting are now old enough to be looking back at their childhoods and saying out loud in public, this really sucked. It was not good for me. Like, it did not make me a better person. Um, and so, you know, we're we're now in a point of revisiting that idea and maybe, you know, moving against it in terms of how we think that teaching should be done now. But I'm not sure that means just because it's hasn't aged well or that it's not like in vogue right now or it's not seen as a good thing right now, that it couldn't also have been a good thing in a different context in a different time. Sure. And I think that's where COVID fits into it. Actually, though, I was going to say, because I think this idea that students, unless a professor yells at them, don't know adversity. These are students who could not like socialize, date hang out, you know, for a few years sometimes, you know, and some of them are probably still scared and in their dorm rooms because they think they'll get COVID if they go outside. And I don't know exactly what they think would happen if they got COVID, but whatever the point is, it's been a screwy time where they, they've had to fork out this huge tuition. Yeah. And I mean, colleges still like counter to most other places in society. A lot of them are still maintaining incredibly not just strict, but kind of frightening COVID standards in that like, you basically can't forget about the pandemic the way that any normal person who's an adult who's moving around in society could like you walk around like you're you may be required to wear a mask, you may be required to to take a COVID test like every single week. Um, you may be subject to stricter quarantine standards than a person who's like, you know, an adult with a job. And all of that adds up to you can have a lot of college campuses, including NYU, that are full of incredibly maladjusted young people who don't really know how to deal with something like this. Yeah, I think that's right. And I think it's I think there's just a lot converging in terms of under socialized students um, who also so then there's the broader economy and the cost of living in general, which I think means that it can be infantilizing for students to feel like they can never kind of make it on their own in life, you know, and that's not necessarily that they don't want to. It might just be that they see it as impossible and they might not be wrong. And I think that that all enters into it. And I think this idea that they're coddled because they are like that the world is too soft for them, I think is a harder case to make now than it was a few years ago. Yeah, I think that there is something to that, you know, in that 
it's not just that they lack the ability to become independent adults. It's that we've been telling them for the past like three years that everything about being an independent adult is extremely dangerous, maybe even like life threatening. So there's not a whole lot to to look at and feel like, yes, I want that for myself. If you, you can't know? be in a room inside with somebody alone, well, it kind of limits your social life. And also just the whole thing with the study skills, because like... He's saying like these students didn't have study skills. It's like, yeah, when you're in college, you, you know, have a study group or whatever. How are you doing that if you're not supposed to leave your room? Yeah. And if you haven't been in school in person for two years. Exactly. Exactly. So it all just seems um, the only sympathy I have here specifically for the teacher is this idea that maybe NYU was just screwing up how it was handling the pandemic more broadly and perhaps pinning more of this on this one teacher than necessary. The reason I don't think of this teacher as a scapegoat is ultimately this professor is because it sounds like he was pretty crummy at teaching and maybe should not have been teaching. And given that this is a case where somebody was not, you know, going to be, it sounds like out on the street (laughs) for lack of having that job, it seems like a win-win for everybody if he's just done. He's 84. He He's an emeritus Princeton professor, which is like, this is, he's probably fine. Like, I don't think that this is a problem. Yeah. I mean, I'm always hesitant to, to take the, you know, this person will be fine. Hence, this isn't a problem thing because you're going to find out that there are a bunch of people who weren't fine, who you just never heard about, you know, because they didn't merit that kind of attention from the national press or otherwise. But that's why they didn't, because they didn't look the part. Like, so so let's just do a thought experiment here. What if it was an adjunct who's like a early 20s grad student with like funny colored hair who failed a bunch of students and got fired? Nobody would care. It wouldn't, the story wouldn't be professor is fired. It would be like TA, you know? Yeah, I'm not sure I'm sold on this, um, but that's okay. Uh, you know, I'm still I still think that overall you're correct in where you've assigned blame. I just feel bad for the students is the thing at the end of the day. Like I was looking at the pictures of them in this article and with the how many of them are wearing masks outside. They're walking down the street and it just looked bleak to be a college student now and maybe specifically an NYU student. And it just seemed like th- these just look like people who've been through the ringer, you know, yeah, yeah. I think the thing is, you know, maybe, maybe this is where I, I diverge from you, is that I see this as a reason to be sympathetic to them, but also a reason not to give them a pass. And I think that for that reason, it's it's good that this story got attention because even though it doesn't point to what a lot of people think it points to, this sort of like inmates running the asylum thing, um, I think it points to the existence of the inmates, you know, who are in dire circumstances, you know, who need a, a form of support that they're not getting. So my question is actually then, NYU fired this professor, fine, whatever. Does that fix the root problem? I don't think it does. I don't either. And I think you're right. I I, I can't say I disagree. <laughs> yeah, I think that is the question. What's going to happen, not just at NYU, but in general with this generation of young people who missed something really crucial because I feel like a lot at the beginning of the pandemic was this whole oh students are going to miss graduation ceremonies it's like okay you know you miss one thing like let's say there was a hurricane and you miss your graduation ceremony that's too bad but you'll you'll move on from that 
But no, this was like people missed years, you know, years of their life, you know, and formative, like really formative years for, you know, personal and professional life. And it just, what, what are these universities that are charging these humongous fees going to do about this? You know, and what, how are they justifying charging <laughs> so much when, if, if all they're going to do is maybe they'll fire the 84 year old adjunct who was too harsh, but what else, what else are they going to? Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. It's tricky. Maybe they should consider yeah. lowering their tuition. <laughs> I don't know. Just, just something they could do. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, we'll, uh, we'll tackle policy questions uh, next time. In the meantime, should we talk about a situation in which, the inmates actually were running the asylum. <laughs> yes, please. I would like to do that. The asylum in this case is the Guggenheim Museum, which is the... Uh, the squiggly one. The, yeah, the squ- it looks like a snail on the Upper East Side, right? Yeah, East 88th or 89th Street. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is a story that uh, I've actually, I've been waiting for it to come out because it had a kind of an amazing Twitter preview of coming attractions <laughs> when the subject of it <laughs> flipped out and wrote this huge thread. That This is the tweet that appeared uh, just about a month ago from Shadria Labouvier. I don't know if I'm pronouncing her name correctly, but Shadria, I don't know. Anyway, it says... Recently, Helen Lewis from The Atlantic reached out to me for a story that she was working on, literally demanding that I speak to her. You don't have to take my word for it. Below is a screenshot of her initial DM to me. I, without question, declined this. And here are my messages. I'm just going to quickly move forward. Her response to Helen, Shadria's response to Helen, says... I will not be speaking to you for your story about the reckoning of 2020 in museums because you are already doomed to fail. There was no reckoning. Um, Blah, blah, blah. This is another example of a clueless, rapacious white woman backed and resourced by a publication that has a history of harm and harm against me and attempting to rewrite history. Um, You don't even have the essential receipts that you need. And I know because I know that the people who have them, including myself, will not be speaking to you. So you plan to discuss my experience? Fuck you. (laughs) Okay. So the reason that I'm reading this response to the request first is because here's the request. Here's Helen Lewis. Dear Shedria, I'm a staff writer at The Atlantic and I'm writing about U.S. museums and the racial reckoning of 2020. I plan to discuss your experience at the Guggenheim. Might we talk? <laughs> Best wishes, Helen. <laughs> that's even okay. So that's it's hilarious. Do you think so? Here's a question: Is Chadria Lebouvier an art monster? Uh, I think she would have to make art to be an art monster. She's just a monster. So she seems to be a strong personality. Would be a way to put it. I mean, that's, I think that's the nicest thing that you can say about Chadria Labouvier. And um, so just for, you know, for additional context, this story is about, the one thing I'm not really clear on is how Chadria was initially connected to this painting. She's an independent Basquiat scholar. Uh, She had, I guess, family connections either to him or at least to his work. Her parents owned three of his drawings. She was a graduate of Williams College in Massachusetts, which is um, actually where my parents went to school. But also it's a very like white upper crusty college in the Berkshires. Could you tell what her what her sort of 
socioeconomic status was from this article? Because I was a little bit confused about that because there was something about how her, how this other curator was from a middle-class family. Was the implication that Le Bouvier was from a poor family, but then why did her, why did she go to Williams and have Basquiat's in her home? In her family. Yeah. I mean, I think it's difficult to to tell here, but putting two and two together, I would say that Le Bouvier cannot possibly be from an impoverished background. It doesn't seem possible for that to coexist with the attendance at Williams. And um, so anyway, so because of her family connections and whatever else, um, she had access to this particular piece of art by Basquiat called Defacement. It was something he had painted on another artist's wall uh, that was then cut out of the wall. The artist hung it over his bed. When the artist died in 1990, it went to his goddaughter. And then at some point, Le Bouvier hears about this and manages to arrange for the display of defacement at the Williams College Museum of Art. So... She's on the scene. Le Bouvier is on the scene. Okay, yeah. So this was all happening in the lead up to 2020. We want to say between 2016 and 2020. 2016 was when um, defacement was displayed at the Williams College Museum of Art. Uh, A curator and artistic director, um, Nancy Spector of the Guggenheim, finds out about defacement, finds out about Le Bouvier, and wants to invite her to collaborate on an exhibition featuring defacement and also some other works made in response to the police killing of a young black man. Um, This was sort of in, in light of the emergence of the Black Lives Matter movement, you know, in light of the realization that the art world and especially the art museum world is very white, very wealthy, very privileged. Um, so even before 2020 and the reckoning, there was all of this desire to kind of be better at diversity. Um, and that's especially in light of like the election of Donald Trump that kind of lit a fire in a lot of elite, privileged, liberal, white spaces where they were like, oh, my God, we have to be activists now. So Le Bouvier's involvement in this exhibition turns out to be basically a disaster. Like like the organic chemistry students, she was not prepared for the rigors of the position that she had been granted as a part of this exhibition. And nevertheless, she wanted more responsibility, more credit, more freedom, um, you know, to, to kind of run roughshod over the protocols that govern the creation of an exhibition like this, um, the materials that go along with it. Uh, she wanted to kind of run roughshod over all of the people who were involved in the exhibition. And um, basically, when she didn't get her way or when she felt that she was being treated you know, with less than the deference she deserved, Le Bouvier would accuse people of being racists. Am I about summing this up? Yeah, yeah, that seems right. So um, this is this is 2019. I'm just going to read from Helen Lewis's piece. Things soon began to go wrong. Le Bouvier felt disrespected by the Guggenheim's desire to edit sections of the essay she had prepared for the exhibition catalog. 
Months later, in a curatorial meeting, Spector told her staff where it really went downhill is when she turned in her essay. According to a leaked transcript of the meeting, another curator seconded Spector's account, describing the work as poorly written and lacks in its scholarship. They told Le Bouvier it would need to be reworked extensively and suggested she could be credited as a co-author alongside Spector and another curator. Le Bouvier was insulted. So... Then fast forward, Lubuvia continued working on the show, but her concerns remained. According to multiple sources, she tried to persuade other interviewees to withdraw from the project. To mollify her, the museum renegotiated her fee and gave her sole credit for the catalog. But Lubuvia later said on Twitter she was unhappy that the Guggenheim described her only as, quote, the first black solo curator on the technical grounds that the Nigerian curator, Okwi and Wezor, sorry if I butchered that, had been involved in organizing a show in 1996. So basically, in the lead up to the opening, things are very tense. After the opening, uh, things became even more tense. She brought in a bunch of people for a private after hours tour, did not tell security beforehand. So apparently it was like such a breach of protocol that it was legitimately shocking to people. Um, And then there was this panel to discuss the three overlapping exhibitions, including this one that Lubuvier was involved with. Um, She was not invited to speak on the panel. So she went and attended in the audience. And during the Q&A, she stood up and said that her not being invited to the panel was violent. She was very angry about this. So, okay, all this is happening in 2019. It kind of fades into the background. The museum does not address it directly. And then 2020 happens. Right, right. But basically, everybody is working from home. A lot of uh, the employees of the museum are furloughed. Everybody's tense. It's the pandemic. And basically, they try to have some kind of thing where everybody checks their own privilege on Zoom, (laughs) like all these companies did. And then this group of past and current employees not using their own names, whatever, like doing this anonymously. Uh, There's the jacuzzi, the jacuzzi, they accuse everybody of everything, but basically there there are more counts against Nancy Spector, this curator's boss, than against her. But then she, for whatever reason, everything coalesces around that she's the one who's gotta go. She goes, I guess technically she quits, but it's really more like fired, one of those situations. And racism solved. And then there's no more racism. (laughs) Um, No. So basically, as Helen Lewis points out very well, I think, in this piece, the museum world generally, the art world generally, um, is very, very dominated by white people, by rich people, by rich white people by donors who are very rich, you know, and so forth. But they decide that rather than, you know, like, I don't know, maybe paying more for an entry level job, I don't know, whatever they could do, that would be more normal. They decide they're going to just pick this one curator and decide she was the source of all racism. And conveniently, conveniently, Le Bouvier has decided that Spectre is Karen incarnate, you know, so she'll be personally satisfied with that, right? But like, nothing's actually changed. And then um, there's this amazing detail at the end of the article about how much money Spectre's boss made in those years. 
It's like a ton. Basically, he did fine. The, the male boss did fine. The female curator, well, not so fine. Um, she she was determined the sacrificial Karen and got rid of and has not had a job apparently since. And um, she's 63 and it doesn't seem like there's much on the horizon for her at this point. Yeah. So, I mean, this is... This is such a complicated story because it's partly about a museum covering its ass by scapegoating one person who happened to be a member of the category of middle-aged white women who were sort of identified as those who would be scapegoated. That was the point at which it was open season on middle-aged white women. It was open season on Karen. And maybe it had been kind of brewing, but you know, up, up until then, <clears throat> and especially in the wake of the Me Too movement, which is going to be a, a topic of our next subscribers-only episode, it was men. It was sort of like older, powerful, privileged, ostensibly abusive men, white men, who were being put on the chopping block. And, you know, if you were one of those and you were in one of these worlds where there was suddenly this new scrutiny on instances of like, you know, interpersonal bad behavior or what have you, um, that could be seen as representative of something larger, then you were going to have a target on your back and everyone was very nervous. But then come 2020, that changed and it became about, you know, the we're going to get we're going to get the middle aged white women. They're just as bad, if not worse, because like unlike the men, when we go after them, they cry and people feel bad for them. Right. Mm -hmm. They're they're the secret because it's not because they think they're the victims is why they're worse, because they imagine that they are oppressed, but they're actually the oppressor because the the white men, only, maybe they're whiny, but they don't imagine that they're the victims in quite the same way. Like they don't or they don't galvanize the left into thinking that they're victims. Yes. So it's partly, you know, this this thing of scapegoating to try to escape from the you know, an indictment that's much more like a systemic problem. But also, I don't think we can underestimate how this played out specifically as a result of someone like Chedra Labouvier being involved because this woman is special. Oh yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's it's hard to say. I I don't know where I I come down on this because yeah. So I think the scapegoating angle is crucial and is why I found it an important story. Because so I also um for my Canadian Jewish news uh, column on this pointed out that Spectre is Jewish. I don't think that that's necessarily irrelevant here. I think that might enter into the scapegoating. Um, but I also think that, yes, there is, the, and, and it, but more broadly, yes, there's this thing with the scapegoating where it's like, there's a social hierarchy. And I don't think that sort of call out culture, cancel culture, whatever you want to call it is like my problem with it isn't that, oh, now, you know, the people who used to be oppressed are now in charge. I don't think that that's it. The basic, I think the status quo doesn't change. And I think that a lot of these maneuverings among that are sort of pitting people who are not actually that powerful against one another or sort of appeasing, like a lot of these moves are this thing of like pretending to do something righteous just to kind of keep the same people in charge and save the institution. Oh, yes. Okay. So something just occurred to me because um, it's not just like pretending, but it's putting on a show of doing something righteous um, that includes a lot of this self-flagellation. And it, what this reminds me of is is something that I wrote about 
for Unheard back over the summer, um, which was about the kind of legacy of Black Lives Matter in these like upper crusty liberal white enclaves, um, which, you know, I live in a town that's sort of surrounded by these. Um, and it was very interesting to see how in, for instance, the town next door, um, Darien, Connecticut, which is one of the wealthiest, at, at times it has been literally the wealthiest community in the United States. I've heard of it and I'm not often in Connecticut. Yes. Yeah. They have a less than 1% Black population. Okay. Um, they have a ton of money. They staged a huge demonstration um, where like all of these people walked down Main Street shouting, no justice, no peace. It's like a sea of of white people wearing like Lily Pulitzer and wearing designer sunglasses, you know, yelling, no justice, no peace. As they walk down their leafy Main Street, um, you know, everybody put like all the businesses, the little shishi boutiques where I can't afford to shop, put Black Lives Matter signs in their windows. All of the multi-million dollar mansions had Black Lives Matter signs on their lawns where no black people would ever see them unless they were there to like do a delivery because no black people live in these neighborhoods. There was all of this kind of like self-flagellation, you know, like very visible denunciations of one's own privilege, um, very visible donations to the Black Lives Matter movement. You know, everyone's putting their signs out. Everyone's like kind of taking turns being ritualistically flogged for the, the crime of having subjugated and marginalized people of color. Okay. This is all, this is the, the whole public thing that's happening. Um, some amount of time, a very short amount of time later, like in the wake of all of this, Darien public schools, which, as you would imagine, are some of the best in the state because of all of the obscene wealth in this community, were asked to admit something like 20 kindergartners from Norwalk, where I live, where there is not that kind of money where the population is 15% black, um, where the school district is majority minority. And they wouldn't let them in. To me, this was just such a, a perfect encapsulation of what happens in public, you know, how all of this performative gesturing is made to, you know, to say like, oh, yeah, look, you know, we're so down with the cause and we're so sorry. And like we renounce our privilege and we're going to do better. And then when there is, isn't, in fact, an opportunity to do better quietly, they just don't. And almost nobody notices. Yeah. 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 I mean, I think that's that's it. Um, that's amazing and funny. And <laughs> I mean, it's not funny. Like, it's horrible. But it's also a little sort of bleakly funny. Um, but yeah, but the strong personality thesis too, though. Sometimes people are just impossible at the but at the right place at the right time. Yeah. Well, I mean, also too, like the fact that, you know, here was somebody who didn't really want systemic change. What Le Bouvier wanted was A, you know, to be given everything. And then when she didn't get everything, what she wanted was somebody's head on a platter. She wanted blood. This was personal to her. And it's it's quite clear from not just this reporting, but her tweets about the incident and the story, which have been voluminous and which, you know, we'll put some of those in the show notes. 
Well, insofar as she could ever be satisfied, what was going to satisfy her was not the kind of thing that would make any kind of difference to the art world and to like the plight of other Black people or marginalized people in the art world. It was going to be something that made her feel like she'd gotten some kind of revenge against this one woman who she decided was the avatar for all of her suffering. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's often the case, I would say, across the ideological spectrum. I think sometimes you have people who claim that their cause is free speech and something like that, but their cause is just being important and famous. And I think you have people who say that their cause is social justice and it's just that they want to be important and famous and given everything. And yeah, I think sometimes it like the, the ideological, ideological aspect, like I think there is a problem in the art world with, you know, social justice, probably. Yeah, I would assume so. Does it have anything to do with this particular person wanting the world to revolve around her? No, no, it doesn't. But you know, the fact that it was her Really, like, I mean, obviously, Nancy Spector did not come out on top, but the the Guggenheim, boy, they were lucky. They were lucky that it was Labouvier and not somebody else. It's a funny, uh, funny building, though. I do like the building. I've oh, always yeah. thought it'd be fun to, like, rollerblade down it or something. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, you can really get vertigo, like, if yeah. you try to, to make your way too quickly up that um, that curly cue staircase. Um, and what does all of this have to do with the legacy of the Me Too movement? To find that out, you're going to have to join us on our Substack at femchaospod.substack.com, uh, where for $5 a month, you can gain access to exclusive content, including the conversation that we're about to have, which is related to this one, but which we are holding back for our premium subscribers. Got to keep the mystery alive. Yeah. Uh, do you have anything else to say about... Maitland Jones Jr. or Shadria Labouvier or the Guggenheim or organic chemistry before we adjourn to our private room. Yes, I am. Yes, I am disappointed that our scandals this week did not include any prosthetic bosoms. I'm disappointed by that too. I am wearing one right now. I'm glad to hear it. I'm glad to hear it. So <laughs> yeah, I mean, me too. Hashtag me too. <laughs> we're actually, you know, in the name of equity, we're we're not both wearing prosthetic bosoms. We're each wearing one prosthetic boob. Just one. Straddling the border. They're so big that they fit over over the Canadian border. I can wear one in Connecticut and you can wear one in Toronto. Exactly. That's what we're can and that is that cans. That is exactly what's happening. Cans. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. All right. We'll be back. We'll be back. Yep. Okay. Bye. Bye.